welcome all of no one currently, but whomever is listening in the future, to Storytime with Alaric. Um, it's just a wee bit past 6.30. Um, we shall see if anyone decides to join us this week. Um, I have very carefully looked forward into our future reading lengths and picked stopping points. Um, I'm sure you will realize why. Today we are returning once again to Dan Simmons' Hyperion. Um, we begin with Day 95. The terrors of the past week have largely abated. I find that even fear fades and becomes commonplace after days of anticlimax. I use the machete to cut small trees for a lean-to, covering the roof and side with gamma cloth and caulking between the logs with mud. The back wall is the solid stone of the boulder. I have sorted through my research gear and sent some of it out, although I suspect that I will never use it now. I have begun foraging to supplement my quickly diminishing cache of freeze-dried food. By now, according to the absurd schedule drawn up so long ago on Passem, I was to have been living with the Bekura for some weeks and trading small goods for local food. No matter. Besides, my diet of bland but easily boiled Kamal roots, I have found a dozen varieties of berries and larger fruits that the Kamlog assures me are edible. So far, only one has disagreed with me enough to keep me squatting all night near the edge of the nearest ravine. I pace the confines of the region as restlessly as one of those caged pelops that were so prized by the minor padishas on Armagast. A kilometer to the south and four to the west, the flame forests are in full form. In the morning, smoke vies with the shifting curtains of mist to hide the sky. Only the near-solid breaks of Bestos, the rocky soil here on the summit plateau, and the hogback ridges running like armor-plated vertebrae northeast from here keep the Teslas at bay. To the north, the plateau widens out, and the undergrowth becomes denser near the cleft for some 15 kilometers, until the way is blocked by a ravine a third as deep and half as wide as the cleft itself. Yesterday, I reached this northernmost point and stared across the gaping barrier with some frustration. I will try again someday, detouring to the east to find a crossing point, but from the telltale signs of Phoenix, across the chasm and the pall of smoke, Along the northeastern horizon, I suspect I will find only the calma-filled canyons and steps of flame forest that are roughed in on the one orbital survey map I carry. Tonight, I visited Tuck's rocky grave as the evening wind began to wail its alien dirge. I knelt there and tried to pray, but nothing came. Edward, nothing came. I am as empty as those fake sarcophagi that you and I unearthed by the score from the sterile desert sands near Terum Belwadi. The, the Zen gnostics would say that this emptiness is a good sign, that it presages openness to a new level of awareness, new insights, new experiences. Merit. My emptiness is only emptiness. Day 96. I have found the Baikura, or rather they have found me. I will write what I can before they come to rouse me from my sleep. Today I was doing some detail mapping a mere four kilometers north of camp when the mists lifted in the midday warmth and I noticed a series of terraces on my side of the cleft that had been hidden until then. I was using my powered glasses to inspect the terraces, actually a series of laddered ledges, spires, shelves, and tussocks extending far out and onto the overhang when I realized that I was staring at man-made habitations. The dozen or so huts were crude, 
rough hovels of cheap, heaped chalmofrons, stones, and sponge turf, but they were unmistakably of human origin. I was th standing there, irresolute, binoculars still lifted, trying to decide whether to climb down to the exposed ledges and confront the inhabitants, or to retreat to my camp, when I felt that lifting chill along the back and neck that tells one with absolute certainty that he is no longer alone. I lowered the binoculars and turned slowly. The Bakura were there, at least thirty of them, standing in a semicircle that left me no retreat to the forest. I do not know what I expected. Naked savages, perhaps, with fierce expressions and necklaces of teeth. Perhaps I had half expected to find the kind of bearded, wild-haired hermits that travelers sometimes encountered in the Moshi Mountains on Hebron. Whatever I had held in my mind, the reality of the Abikura did not fit the template. The people who had approached me so silently were short. None came higher than my shoulder, and swathed in roughly woven dark robes that covered them from neck to toe. When they moved, as some did now, they seemed to glide over the rough ground like wraiths. From a distance, their appearances reminded me of nothing so much as a gaggle of diminutive Jesuits at a new Vatican enclave. I almost giggled then, but realized that such a response might well be a sign of rising panic. The Vicura showed no outward signs of aggression to cause such a panic. They carried no weapons. Their small hands were empty, as empty as their expressions. Their physiognomy was hard to describe succinctly. They are bald, all of them. That baldness, the ab absence of any facial hair, and the loose robes that fell in a straight line to the ground all conspired to make it very difficult to tell the men from the women. The group now confronting me, more than 50 by this time, looked to be all of roughly the same age, somewhere between 40 and 50 standard years. Their faces were smooth, the skin tinged with a yellowish cast that I guess might be associated with generations of ingesting trace minerals in the calma and other local plant life. One might be tempted to describe the round faces of the Baikura as cherubic until, upon closer inspection, that impression of sweetness fades and is replaced by another interpretation, placid idiocy. As a priest, I have spent enough time on backward worlds to see the effects of an ancient genetic disorder very, very variously called Down syndrome, Mongolism, or generationship legacy. This, then, was the overall impression created by the sixty or so dark-robed little people who had approached me. I was being greeted by a silent, smiling band of bald, retarded children. I reminded myself that these were almost certainly the same group of smiling children who had slit Tuck's throat while he slept and left him to die like a butchered pig. The closest Baikura stepped forward, stopped five paces from me, and said something in a soft monotone. Just a minute, I said, and fumbled out my comm log. I tapped in the translator function. Bayeta ota mena lot cruz from ket? asked the sort, short man in front of me. I slipped on the hear plug just in time to hear the comm log's translation. There was no lag time. The apparently foreign language was a simple corruption of an archaic seed ship English not so far removed from the in indigenous argot of the plantations. You are the man who belongs to the cross shape slash cruciform, interpreted the comlog, giving me two choices for the final noun. Yes, I said, knowing now that these were the ones who had touched me the night I slept through Tuck's murder, which meant that these were the ones who had murdered Tuck. I waited. The hunting master was in my pack. 
The pack was set against a small coma, not ten paces from me. Half a dozen Bikura stood between me and it. It did not matter. I knew at that instant that I would not use a weapon against another human being, even a human being who had murdered my guide and might well be planning to murder me at any second. I closed my eyes and said a silent act of contrition. When I opened my eyes, more of the Bikura had arrived. There was a cessation of movement, as if, of a, as if a quorum had been filled. A decision reached. Yes, I said again into the silence. I am the one who wears the cross. I heard the comlog speaker pronounce the last word. Cresifem. The Bikura nodded in unison, and, as if from long practice as altar boys, all went to one knee, robes rustling softly in a perfect genuflection. I opened my mouth to speak and found that I had nothing to say. I closed my mouth. The Bikura stood. A breeze moved the brittle calm of fronds and leaves together to make a dry, end-of-summer sound above us. The Bikura nearest to me on the left stepped closer, grasped my forearm with a touch of cool, strong fingers, and spoke a soft sentence that my Kamlong translated as, Come, it is time to go to the houses and sleep. It was mid-afternoon. Wondering if the Kamlog had, Kamlog had translated the word sleep properly, or if it might be an idiom or metaphor for die, I nodded and followed them toward the village at the edge of the cleft. Now I sit in the hut and wait. There are rustling sounds. Someone else is awake now. I sit and wait. Day 97. The Baikura call themselves the Three Score and Ten. I've spent the past 26 hours talking to them, observing, making notes when they take their two-hour mid-afternoon sleep, and generally trying to record as much data as I can before they decide to slit my throat. Except now I am beginning to believe that they will not hurt me. I spoke to them yesterday after our sleep. Sometimes they did, do not respond to questions, and when they do, the responses are little better than the grunts or divergent answers one receives from slow children. After their initial question and invitation at our first encounter, none of them originated a single query or comment my way. I questioned them subtly, carefully, cautiously, and with the professional calm of a trained ethnologist. I asked the simplest, most factual questions possible to make sure that the comlog was functioning properly. It was, but the sum total of the answers left me almost as ignorant as I had been twenty-some hours before. Finally, tired in body and spirit, I abandoned professional subtlety and asked the group I was sitting with, Did you kill my companion? My three interlocutors did not look up from the weaving they were doing on a crude loom. Yes, said the one I have come to think of as Alpha, because he had been the first to approach me in the forest. We cut your companion's throat with sharpened stones, and held him down and silent while he struggled. He died the true death. Why? I asked after a moment. My voice sounded as dry as a corn husk crumbling. Why did he die the true death? said Alpha, still not looking up. Because all of his blood ran out and he stopped breathing. No, I said. Why did you kill him? Alpha did not respond, but Betty, who may or not be female and Alpha's mate, looked up from her loom and said simply, To make him die. Why? The responses invariably came back and just as invariably failed to enlighten me one iota. After much questioning, I had ascertained that they had killed Tuck to make him die, and that he had died because he had been killed. "'What is the difference between death and true death?' I asked, not trusting the comlog or my temper at this point. 
The third Baikura, Del, grunted a response that the Comlog interpreted as, Your companion died the true death. You did not. Finally, in frustration far too close to rage, I snapped, Why not? Why didn't you kill me? All three stopped in the middle of their mindless weaving and looked at me. You cannot be killed because you cannot die, said Alpha. You cannot die because you belong to the cruciform and follow the way of the cross. I had no idea why the damn machine would translate cross as cross one second and as cruciform the next. Because you belong to the cruciform. A chill went through me, followed by the urge to laugh. Had I stumbled into that old adventure hollow cliché, the lost tribe that worshipped the god that had tumbled into their jungle until the poor bastards cuts himself shaving or something, and then the tribe's people, assured and a bit relieved that the obvious, at the obvious mortality of their visitor, offer up their erstwhile deity as a sacrifice? It would have been funny if the image of Tuck's bloodless face and raw-rimmed, gaping wound was not so fresh. Their reaction to the cross certainly suggested that I had encountered a group of survivors of a once-Christian colony, Catholics. Even though the data on the comlog insisted that the dropship of 70 colonists who had crashed on this plateau 400 years ago had held only neo-Kerwin Marxists, all of whom should have been indifferent if not openly hostile to the old religions. I considered dropping the matter as being far too dangerous to pursue, but my stupid need to know drove me on. Do you worship Jesus? I asked. Their blank expressions left no need for verbal negative. Christ, I tried again. Jesus Christ. Christian. The Catholic Church. No interest. Catholic? Jesus? Mary? St. Peter? Paul? St. Tailhard? The comlog made noises, but the words seemed to have no meaning for them. You follow the cross, I said, flailing for some last contact. All three looked at me. We belong to the cruciform, said Alpha. I nodded, understanding nothing. This evening I fell asleep briefly just before sunset, and when I awoke it was to the organ pipe music of the cleft's nightfall winds. It was much louder here on the village ledges. Even the hovels seemed to join the chorus as the rising gusts whistled and whined through stone gaps, flapping fronds and crude smoke holes. Excuse me. Something was wrong. It took me a groggy minute to realize that the village was abandoned. Every hut was empty. I sat on a cold boulder and wondered if my presence had sparked some mass exodus. The wind music had ended, and the meteors were beginning their nightly show through cracks and lo low clouds, when I heard a sound behind me and turned to find all seventy of the three score and ten behind me. They walked past without a word and went to their huts. There were no lights. I imagined them sitting in their hovels, staring. I stayed outside for some time before returning to my own hut. After a while, I walked to the edge of the grassy shelf and stood where rock dropped away into the abyss. A cluster of vines and roots clung to the cliff face, but appeared to end a few meters into space and hang there above emptiness. No vine could have been long enough to offer a way into the river two kilometers below. But the Baikura had come from this direction. Nothing made sense. I shook my head and went back to my hut. Sitting here, riding by the light of the comlog disk key, I try to think of precautions I can take to ensure that I will see sunrise. I can think of none. Day 103. The more I learn, the less I understand. I have moved most of my gear to the hut they leave empty for me here in the village. I have taken photographs, recorded video and audio chips, and imaged a full holoscan of the village and its inhabitants. They do not seem to care. 
I project their images and they walk right through them, showing no interest. I play back their words to them and they smile and go back into their hovels to sit for hours, doing nothing, saying nothing. I offer them trade trinkets and they take them without comment, check to see if they are edible, and then leave them lying. The grass is littered with plastic beads, mirrors, bits of colored cloth, and cheap pens. I have set up the full medical lab, but to no avail. The three score and ten will not let me examine them, will not let me take blood samples, even though I have repeatedly shown them that it is painless, will not let me scan them with the diagnostic equipment, will not, in short, cooperate in any way. They do not argue, they do not explain, they simply turn away and go about their non-business. After a week, I still cannot tell the males from the females. Their faces remind me of those visual puzzles that shift forms as you stare. Sometimes Betty's face looks undeniably female, and ten seconds later, the sense of gender is gone, and I think of her, him, as Beta again. Their voices undergo the same shift, soft, well-modulated, sexless. They remind me of the poorly programmed homocomps one encounters on backwater worlds. I find myself hoping to catch a glimpse of a naked Baikura. This is not easy for a Jesuit of 48 standard years to admit. Still, it would not be an easy task for even a veteran voyeur. The nudity taboo seems absolute. They wear the long robes while awake and during their two-hour midday nap. They leave the village area to urinate and defecate, and I suspect that they do not remove the loose robes even then. They do not seem to bathe. One would suspect that this would cause olfactory problems, but there is no odor about these primitives except for the slight, sweet smell of calma. You must undress sometimes, I said to Alpha one day, abandoning delicacy in favor of information. No, said Al, and went elsewhere to sit and do nothing while fully dressed. They have no names. I found this incredible at first, but now I am sure. We are all that was and will be, said the shortest bikera, one I think of as female and call Epi. We are the three score and ten. I searched the comlog records and confirmed what I suspected. In more than 16,000 known human societies, none are listed where there are no individual names at all. Even in the loosest hive societies, individuals respond to their class category followed by a simple code. I tell them my name and they stare. Father Paul Durer, Father Paul Durer, repeats the comlog translator, but there is no attempt at even a simple repetition. Except for their mass disappearances each day before sunset and their common two-hour sleep time, they do very little as a group. Even their lodging arrangements appear random. Al will spend one nap time with Betty, the next with Gam, the third with Zelda or Pete. No system or schedule is apparent. Every third day, the entire group of 70 goes into the forest to forage and returns with berries, calma roots, and bark, fruit, and whatever else might be edible. I was sure they were vegetarians until I saw Dell munching on the cold corpse of an infant arboreal. The little primate must have fallen from the high branches. It seems then that the three score and ten do not disdain meat. They are simply too stupid to hunt and kill it. When the Baikora are thirsty, they walk almost 300 meters to a stream that cascades into the cleft. In spite of this inconvenience, there are no signs of water skins, jugs, or any type of pottery. I keep my reserve of water in 10-gallon plastic containers, but the villagers take no notice. In my plummeting respect for these people, I do not find it unlikely that they have spent generations in a village with no handy water source. Who built the houses? I ask. They have no word for village. The three score and ten, responds Will. I can tell him from the others only by a broken finger that did not mend well. 
Each of them has at least one such distinguishing feature, although sometimes I think it would be easier to tell crows apart. When did they build them? I ask, although I should know by now that any question that starts with when will not receive an answer. I receive no answer. They do go into the cleft each evening, down the vines. On the third evening, I tried to observe this exodus, but six of them turned me back from the edge and gently but persistently brought me back to, the, to my hut. Oh, I lost my place. It was the first observable action of the Baikura that had in, hinted at aggression, and I sat in some apprehension after they had gone. The next evening, as they departed, I went quietly to my hut, not even peering out, but after they returned, I retrieved the imager and its tripod from where I'd left them near the edge. The timer had worked perfectly. The hollows showing the Baikura grabbing the vines and scrambling down the cliff face, as nimbly as the little arboreals that filled the calm and weirwood forests. Then they disappeared under the overhang. What do you do when you go down the cliff each evening? I asked Al the next day. The native looked at me with a, that seraphatic Buddha smile I have learned to hate. You belong to the cruciform, he said, as if that answered everything. Do you worship when you go down the cliff? I asked. No answer. I thought a minute. I also follow the cross, I said, knowing that it would be translated as belong to the cruciform. Any day now, I would need the, not need the translator program, but this conversation was too important to leave to chance. Does this mean that I should join you when you go down the cliff face? For a second, I thought that Al was thinking. His brow furrowed, and I realized that it was the first time I had seen one of the three score and ten come close to frowning. Then he said, you cannot. You belong to the cruciform, but you are not of the three score and ten. I realized that it had taken every neuron and synapse in his brain to frame that distinction. What would you do if I did go down the cliff face? I asked, expecting no response. Hypothetical questions almost always had as much luck as my time-based queries. This time he did respond. The seraphic smile and untroubled countenance returned, and Alpha said softly, If you try to go down the cliff, we will hold you down in the grass, take sharpened stones, cut your throat, and wait until your blood stops flowing and your heart stops beating. I said nothing. I wondered if he could hear the pounding of my heart at that moment. Well, I thought, at least you don't have to worry any longer that they think you are a god. The silence stretched. Finally, Al added one more sentence that I have been thinking about ever since. And if you did it again, he said, we would have to kill you again. We stared at each other for some time after that, each convinced, I am sure, that the other was a total idiot. Day 104. Each new relevation adds to my confusion. The absence of children has bothered me since my first day in the village. Looking back through my notes, I find frequent mention of it in the daily observations I have dictated to my comlog, but no record of it in the personal mishmash here that I call a journal. Perhaps the implications were too frightening. To my frequent and clumsy attempts at piercing this mystery, the three score and ten have offered their usual enlightenment. The person questioned, smiles beautifully, and responds in some non-sequitur that would make the babble of the web's worst village idiot seem like sage aphorisms in comparison. More often than not, they do not answer at all. One day, I stood in front of the one I had tagged as Dell, stayed there until he had to acknowledge my presence, and asked, why are there no children? We are the three score and ten, he said softly. Where are the babies? No response. 
no sense of evading the question, merely a blank stare. I took a breath. Who is the youngest among you? Dell appeared to be thinking, wrestling with the concept. He was overmatched. I wondered if the Baikura had lost their time sense so completely that such a question was doomed. After a minute of silence, however, Dell pointed to where Al was crouched in the sunlight, working with his crude handloom, and said, There is the last one to return. To return, I said. From where? Dell stared at me with no emotion, not even impatience. You belong to the cruciform, he said. You must know the way of the cross. I nodded. I knew enough to recognize that in this direction lay one of the many conversational illogical loops that usually derailed our dialogues. I handed for some way to keep a grasp of the thin thread of information. Then Al, I said, pointed, is the last to be born, to return, but the others will return? I was not surprised that I understood my own question, not sure that I understood my own question. How does one inquire about birth when the interviewee has no word for child and no concept of time? But Dell seemed to understand. He nodded. Encouraged, I asked. Then when will the next of the three score and ten be born? Return. No one can return until one dies, he said. Suddenly I thought I understood. So new children. No one will be returned until someone dies, I said. You replace the missing one with another to keep the group at three score and ten? Dell responded with the type of silence as I had come to interpret as assent. The pattern seemed clear enough. The Bakura were quite serious about their three score and ten. They kept the tribal population at seventy, the same number recorded on the passenger list of the dropship that had crashed here four hundred years ago. Little chance of coincidence there. When someone died, they allowed a child to be born to replace the adult. Simple. Simple, but impossible. Nature and biology do not work that neatly. Besides the problem of minimum herd population, there were other absurdities. Even though it is difficult to tell the ages of these smooth-skinned people, it is obvious that no more than ten years separate the oldest from the youngest. Although they act like children, I would guess that their average age to be in the late thirties or mid-forties in standard years. So where are the very old? Where are the parents, aging uncles, and unmarried aunts? At this rate, the entire tribe would will enter age, old age at approximately the same time. What happens when they all pass beyond childbearing age and it comes time to replace members of the tribe? The Baikura led dull, sedentary lives. The accident rate, even while living on the very edge of the cleft, must be low. There were, are no predators. The seasonal variations are minimal, and the food simply supply almost certainly remains stable. But granted all this... There must have been times in the 400-year history of this baffling group when disease swept the village, when more than the usual number of vines gave way and dropped citizens into the cleft, or when something caused the abnormal cluster of sudden deaths that insurance companies have dreaded since time immemorial. And then what? Do they breed to make up the difference and then revert to their current sexless behavior? Are the Baikura so different from every other recorded human society that they have a rutting period once every few years, once a decade, once in a lifetime? It is doubtful. I sit here in my hut and review the possibilities. One is that these people live very long lifespans and can reproduce during most of that time, allowing for simple replacements of tribal casualties. Only this does not explain the common ages. 
and there is no mechanism to explain such longevity. The best anti-aging drugs the hegemony has to offer only manage to extend an active lifetime a bit over the 100 standard year mark. Preventative health measures have spread the vitality of early middle age well into the late 60s, my age. But except for colonial transplants, bioengineering, and other perks for very rich, no one in the world web can expect to begin planning a family when they're 70 or expect to dance at their 100th and 10th birthday party. If eating calma roots or breathing the pure air of the Pinion Plateau had a dramatic effect on retarding aging, it would be sure, a sure bet that everyone on Hyperion would be living here munching calma, that this planet would have had a farcaster centuries ago, and that every citizen of the hegemony who has a universal card would be planning to spend vacations and retirement here. No. More logical conclusion is that the Baikura live normal-length lives, have children at a normal rate, but kill them unless a replacement is required. They may practice abstinence or birth control, other than slaughtering the newborn, until the entire band reaches an age when new blood will soon be needed. A mass birthing time explains the apparent common age of the members of the tribe. But who teaches the young? What happens to the parents and other older people? Do the Baikura pass along the rudiments of their crude excuse for a culture and then allow their own deaths? Would this be a true death? The rubbing out of an entire generation? Do the three score and ten murder individuals at both ends of the bell-shaped age curve? This type of speculation is useless. I am beginning to get furious at my own lack of problem-solving skills. Let's form a strategy here and act on it, Paul. Get off your lazy Jesuit ass. Problem. How to tell the sexes apart. Solution. Cajole or coerce a few of these poor devils into a medical exam. Find out what all the sex role mystery and nudity taboo is about. A society that depends upon years of rigid sexual abstinence for population control is consistent with my new theory. Problem. Why are they so fascinated about maintaining the same three score and ten population that the lost dropship colony started with? Solution. Keep pestering them until you find out. Problem. Where are the children? Solution. Keep pressing and poking until you find out. Perhaps the evening excursion down the cliff is related to all of this. There may be a nursery there. Or a pile of small bones. Problem. What is this belong to the cruciform and way of the cross business, if not a contorted vestige of the original colonists' religious belief? Solution. Find out by going to the source. Could their daily descent down the cliff be religious in nature? Problem. What is down the cliff face? Solution. Go down and see. Tomorrow, if their pattern holds true, all three score and ten of the three score and ten will wander into the woods for several hours of foraging. This time, I will not go with them. This time, I am going over the edge and down the cliff. Day 105. Nine, 930 hours. Thank you, O Lord, for allowing me to see what I have seen today. Thank you, O Lord, for bringing me to this place at this time to see the proof of your presence. 1125 hours. Edward, Edward, I have to return to show you all, to show everyone. I've packed everything I need, putting the imager discs and film in a pouch I wove from besto sleeves. I have food, water, the master with its weakening charge, tent, sleep robes. If only their restaurants had not been stolen. The Bikura must might have kept them. No, I've searched the hovels and the nearby forest. They would have no use for them. It doesn't matter. I'll leave today if I can. Otherwise, as soon as I can. Edward, 
I have it all here on film and discs. 1400. There is no way through the flame forests today. The smoke drove me back even before I penetrated the edge of the active zone. I returned to the village and went over the, the, the hollows. There was no mistake. The miracle is real. 1530 hours. The three score and ten will return any moment. What if they know? What, what if they can tell by looking at me that I have been there? I could hide. No, there is no need to hide. God did not bring me this far and let me see what I have seen only to let me die at the hands of these poor children. 1615 hours. The three score and ten returned and went to their huts without giving me a glance. I sit here in the doorway of my own hut and cannot keep from smiling, from laughing, from praying. Earlier, I walked to the edge of the cleft, said mass, and took communion. The villagers did not bother to watch. How soon can I leave? Supervisor Orlandi and Tuck had said that the flame forests were fully active for three local months, 120 days, then relatively quiet for two. Tuck and I arrived here on day 87. I cannot wait another hundred days to bring the news to the world, to all of the worlds. If only a skimmer would brave the weather and flame forests and pluck me out of here. If only I could access one of the data fix sats that serve the plantations. Anything is possible. More miracles will occur. 2350 hours. The three score and ten have gone down into the cleft. The voices of the evening wind choir are rising all around. How I wish I could be with them now. There, below, I will do the next best thing. I will drop to my knees here, near the cliff edge, and pray while the organ notes of the planet and the sky sing what I now know is a hymn to the real and present God. Day 106. I awoke today to a perfect morning. The sky was a deep turquoise. The sun was a sharp, blood-red stone set within. I stood outside my hut as the mists cleared, the arboreals ended their morning screech concert, and the air began to warm. Then I went in and viewed my tapes and discs. I realized that in yesterday's excited scribblings I mentioned nothing of what I found down the cliff. I will do so now. I have the discs, film tapes, and comlog notes, but there is always the chance that only these personal journals will be found. I lowered myself over the cliff edge at approximately 7.30 hours yesterday morning. The Bikura were all foraging in the forest. The descent on vines had looked simple enough. They were bound around one another sufficiently to create a sort of ladder in most places. But as I swung out and began to let myself down, I could feel my heart pounding hard enough to be painful. There was a sheer 3,000 meter drop down to the rocks and river below. I kept a tight grip on at least two vines at all times and centimetered my way down, trying not to look at the abyss beneath my feet. It took me the better part of an hour to descend the 150 meters that I am sure the Bikura can cover in 10 minutes. Eventually, I reached the curve of an overhang. Some vines trailed away into space, but most of them curled under the sheer slab of rock toward the cliff wall 30 meters in. Here and there, the vines appeared to have been braided to form crude bridges upon which the Vicura probably walked with little or no help from their hands. I crawled along these braided strands, clutching other vines for support and uttering prayers I had not said since my boyhood. I stared, stared straight ahead as if I could forget that there was only a seemingly infinite expanse of air under those swaying, creaking strands of veg vegetable matter. 
There was a broad ledge along the cliff wall. I allowed three meters of it to separate me from the gulf before I squeezed through the vines and dropped two and a half meters to the stone. The ledge was about five meters wide, and it terminated in a short, a short distance to the northeast where the great mass of the overhang began. I followed a path along the ledge to the southwest and had gone twenty or thirty paces before I stopped in shock. It was a path, a path worn out of solid stone. Its shiny surface had been pushed centimeters below the level of the surrounding rock. Further on, where the path descended a curving lip of ledge to a lower, wider level, steps had been cut into the stone, but even these had been worn to the point that they seemed to sag in the middle. I sat down for a second as the impact of this simple fact struck me. Even four centuries of daily travel by the three score and ten could not account for such erosion of solid rock. Someone or something had used this path long before the Bicora colonists crashed here. Someone or something had used this path for millennial. I stood and walked on. There was little noise except for the wind blowing gently along the half-kilometer-wide cleft. I realized that I could hear the soft sound of the river far below. The path curved left around a section of the cliff and ended. I stepped out into a broad apron of gently descending stone and stared. I believe I made the sign of cross without thinking. Because this ledge ran due north and south for a hundred-meter cut of the cliff, I looked due west along a thirty-kilometer slash of the cleft to open sky where the plateau ended. I realized at once that the setting sun would illuminate this, sla this slab of cliff wall under the overhang each evening. It would not have surprised me if, on the spring or autumn solstice, Hyperion's sun would, from this vantage point, appear to set directly into its cleft, its red sides just touching the pink-toned rock walls. I turned left and stared at the cliff face. The warm path led across the wide ledge to doors carved into vertical slabs of stone. No, these were not merely doors. They were portals, intricately carved portals with elaborate stone casements and lintels. To either sides of these twin doors spread broad windows of stained glass, rising at least 20 meters toward the overhang. I went closer and expected the facade. Whoever had built this had done so by widening the area under the overhang, slicing a sheer, smooth wall into the granite of the plateau and then tunneling directly into the cliff face. I ran my hand over the deeply cut folds of ornamental carving around the door. Smooth. Everything had been smoothed and worn and softened by time, even here, hidden away from most of the elements by the protective lip of the overhang. How many thousands of years had this temple been carved into the south wall of the cleft? The stained glass was neither glass nor plastic, but some thick, translucent substance that seemed as hard as the surrounding stone to the touch. Nor was the window a composite of panels. The colors swirled, shaded, melded, and blended into one another like oil on water. I removed my flashlight from the pack, touched one of the doors, and hesitated as the tall portal swung inward with frictionless ease. I entered the vestibule. There is no other word for it. Crossed the silent ten-meter space and paused in front of another wall made from the same stained-glass material that even now glowed behind me, filling the vestibule with a thick light of a hundred subtle hues. I realized instantly that at the sunset hour, the direct rays of the sun would fill this room 
with incredibly deep shafts of color would strike the stained glass wall in front of me and would illuminate whatever lay beyond. I found the single door outlined by thin, dark metal set into the stained glass stone, and I passed through it. On Passam, we have, at best we could, from ancient photos and hollows, rebuilt the Basilica of St. Peter's exactly as it stood in the ancient Vatican. Almost 700 feet long and 450 feet wide, the church can hold 50,000 worshippers when His Holiness says Mass. We have never had more than 5,000 faithful there, even when the Council of Bishop of all the worlds is in assembly every 43 years. In the central apse, near our copy of Bernoni's throne of St. Peter, the great dome rises more than 130 meters above the floor of the altar. It is an impressive space. This space was larger. In the dim light, I used the beams of my flashlight to ascertain that I was in a single great room, a giant hall hollowed out of solid stone. I estimated that the smooth walls rose to a ceiling that must be only a few meters beneath the surface of the crag where the Bikura had set their huts. There was no ornamentation here, no furniture, no sign of any concession to form or function except for the object that sat squarely in the center of this huge, echoing cave of a room. Centered in the great hall was an altar, a five-meter-square slab of stone left when the rest was hollowed out, and from this altar rose a cross, four meters high, three meters wide, carved in the old style of the elaborate crucifixes of old earth, the cross faced the stained glass walls as if awaiting the sun and the explosion of light that would ignite inlaid diamonds, sapphires, blood crystals, lapis beads, queens, tears, onyxes, and other precious stones that I could make out in the light of the flashlight as I approached. I knelt and prayed. Shutting off the flashlight, I waited several minutes before my eyes could discern the cross in the dim, smoky light. This was, without a doubt, the cruciform of which the Bikura spoke. It had been set here a minimum of many thousands of years ago, perhaps tens of thousands, long before mankind first left old earth, almost certainly before Christ talk, taught in Galilee. I prayed. Today I set out in the sunlight after reviewing the hollow disks. I have confirmed what I barely noticed during my return up the cliff after discovering what I now think of as the basilica. On the ledge outside the basilica there are steps descending further into the cleft. Although not as worn as the path leading to the basilica, they are equally intriguing. God alone knows what other wonders wait below. I must let the worlds know of this find. The irony of me being the one to discover this is not lost on me. If it had not been for Armagast and my exile, this discovery might have waited more centuries. The church might have died before this revelation could have brought new life to it. But I have found it. One way or the other, I will leave or get my message out. So, I'm stopping here, slightly shy of our 25 pages, because... Um, you'll find out next week. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed this reading of uh, Dan Simmons' Hyperion. Uh, I hope you all have a lovely week, and 
I will see you again next week.